Thanks for listening to Curious Cat, the podcast that examines the shadowy space where science and the supernatural collide. I'm your host, Jennifer Holtz. Join me every week as I explore what it means to be a soul in a meat suit. Welcome to Curious Cat. days ago, I went to a bookstore to find the book Lessons in Chemistry, which was recommended to me by my beloved Mama Kate. As I walked past the nonfiction area, a book caught my eye, Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now. I haven't been able to put it down since. I'm writing notes in the margins, I'm underlining bits and pieces, and wow, just wow. Sewn up in a few words, being present, living in now is the key, he says, to living in bliss, being our truest selves, and holding a constant connection to everything. So remember that sage turtle from Kung Fu Panda? He said the present is a gift. It is, but one that's unwrapping is put off and put off and put off. I swear this relates. My guides told me some time ago that the magic is in the mundane. It was such a simple message, like the gift of the present. I almost overlooked the power behind their message. What is more mundane than staying present? It's as basic of a philosophy lesson, or spiritual exercise as it gets. Have we lost the art of doing nothing? Have we conditioned ourselves to skip the void between point A and point B? All is not lost. Tolle says being in the now as a perspective shift, a balance adjustment, can lead to instant change. Let's get into it. Ask yourself this, when's the last time you sat still and just listened, felt, were present for, say, a half an hour, 15 minutes, one minute, 15 seconds? What happened first to interrupt the now? Was it the to-do list that crept in? Did your dog bark? Did you catch yourself listening to your kids in the next room? Felt a pang of discomfort in your body? Grumbling stomach? Cell phone vibrate? Car outside honk? Or were you, there were squeaky brakes outside? Did your nose itch? Just don't judge yourself. You're just observing. And you're in Good company. Well, at least you're in company because I'm there with you. Next time you pass a bus stop, notice how many people are on their phones. Same goes for restaurants. I mean, remember those old signs they used to post in restaurants that read, no cell phones allowed or take that call outside, please. 
Those are relics of a time when we understood that splitting our attention between the computer in our hands and the person across the table was rude. So why has it become the norm? In a word, dopamine. I found a brilliant article from Lemonade.com that asks why we are addicted to our phones. And I wanted to reuse um, a good part of it, a lot of highlighted pieces. So the author asks, how many times have you looked at your phone in the last hour? How about in the last 10 minutes? If you're like most, the answer is probably more than a few. For many of us, our phones have become an integral part of our day-to-day. In fact, U.S. Chief Justice John Roberts Jr. stated that phones are such an quote, insistent part of daily life that a visitor from Mars might conclude they were an important feature of human anatomy, Uh, end of quote. Whoa, big impact, the article says. It's no question that this phenomenon is widespread. In a recent study, 94% of participants reported feeling troubled when they didn't have their phone with them. 80% felt jealous when someone else held their phone. And 70% expected to feel depressed, panicked, and helpless if their phone was lost or stolen, according to Psychology Today. Another study even found that half of participants would rather have a broken bone than a broken phone, says NPR. While these stats may not surprise you now, with maybe the exception of the last one they note, they'd probably shock someone six years ago. It wasn't until 2013 that the majority of Americans owned a smartphone. To put it another way, in just a few years, a single tech device has gone from obsolete to an object people would be willing to give up food, sleep, and sex for, according to USA Today. So how did we get from A to B? Spoiler alert, a lot of it is rooted in psychology and evolution. This sudden increase in phone usage didn't happen overnight. It happened gradually, starting from a tiny molecule in our brains called dopamine. Here's what happened. When you got your first smartphone, you probably did some things that made you feel good. Think reconnecting with a childhood friend, reading a nice text message from a friend, or getting a notification. All of these activities cause the release of dopamine. So what's dopamine? It's a neurotransmitter that makes you feel good. Our brains are designed to release dopamine when we do something that meets a survival need, like eating or having sex or nursing a baby. I had to add that because that's nature's way of making sure as new mothers, we took care of our babies. Countless studies have shown that phone activity causes the release of dopamine in our brains, making us feel aroused, motivated, and happy. But in those first few months of phone usage, you also probably did a few mundane things that didn't give you any sort of warm, exciting feeling. Maybe some of those were mindlessly scrolling through oddly satisfying videos on Instagram or looking at pictures of a stranger. But each time you did something that prompted the release of dopamine, your brain started to notice a pattern. Soon enough, your brain began to associate cell phone with dopamine. And since your brain naturally craves easy hits of dopamine, it started to crave your phone. And suddenly a habit forms. 
When you perform a specific behavior over and over again that triggers a certain reward, the pattern becomes etched into your neural pathways. Soon enough, your brain begins to crave that reward regularly. And here's the thing about dopamine. It quickly metabolizes in your brain, leaving you wanting more and more as soon as possible. So once the impact of the dopamine goes away, your brain will do whatever it takes to get that feeling back as soon as it can. The article asks, what's an easy, accessible way to get that surge of dopamine? Picking up your phone. So that's just what the brain tells your body to do. And the thing is, they say, not every text, Facebook post, and Instagram picture will deliver the goods your brain is looking for, but we're wired to work for those dopamine rewards and will. Sometimes we'll even contribute to the reward system ourselves. They say, have you ever found yourself posting something on social media just to feel good or sending a bunch of texts to friends just to feel connected? No worries. You're not alone. It happens to the best of us and it's our neural systems at work. But why is this happening with phones and not other devices? What is it about phones that bring us a surge of dopamine? Take tablets, for example. They're sleek, digital, and somewhat portable, just like phones. But the difference between a phone and a tablet is that we tend to use tablets for more personal, passive activities, like watching videos and reading books. Those activities prompt a totally different neurological response, according to Psychology Today. However, we tend to use our phones for a different function. They serve as a portal to connect us to a social world. We spend most of our time on cell phones, texting, scrolling through social media, and messaging friends. So what does this have to do with dopamine? Turns out all notifications we get on our phones from social media, messaging apps, and others activate dopamine in our brains. In fact, the most addictive smartphone functions all share a common theme. They tap into the human desire to connect to other people, according to a new paper published in Frontiers in Psychology by two professors. So just like release of dopamine, our need to be social is hardwired to, in our brains. Humans have a desire to seek and maintain strong relationships. It's as basic as our psychological well-being as hunger and thirst are to our physical satisfaction. So why it's rooted in evolution. As humans evolved, they depended on each other to survive under harsh environmental circumstances. Those who had stronger connections with other humans had a higher chance of surviving because they had several people to support them. Particularly, the desire to monitor other humans runs deep in our evolutionary past. So as humans evolved, they needed constant input from others to determine culturally appropriate behavior. This was their way to achieve meaningfulness, long-term goals, and a sense of identity. It's no wonder that social media, and particularly posting pictures and videos, arose to such popularity. All things considered, it looks like smartphones provide us with a platform to carry out our innate need for human connection, which is a fundamental feature of human evolution that predates smartphones by hundreds of thousands of years, according to Dr. Vessier. 
This is especially appealing to humans since our brains are hardwired to find shortcuts to everything to save cognitive energy for other pursuits. And this is me, Jen, talking to you now because I remember specifically when I had a... um there was, I was doing an exercise group with another group of mothers. And there was a trainer that was explaining to us that circuit training is so impactful because you're switching it up so quickly because the body in three motions of whatever it is, a squat, a lunge, a, you know, a weightlifting, your body in one, two, three reps will figure out the most efficient slash lazy way to do it. So you have to change it up constantly in order to fool your brain and your body into doing more exercise. So that's why circuit training is so impactful because you're kind of playing the same game, but you're winning a little bit more. The article continues, and truth be told, this effect is only exacerbated by tech companies. Well, we know that, right? Because we talked about the um, documentary that's on Netflix that addresses this whole thing. They want us to talk about silver linings now so that this seems scary, it seems daunting, but actually it can be comforting. So how? Dr. Keith Hampton of Michigan State University points out that smartphones enable us to stay connected to friends even after transitioning from school to college or moving to a new city. Because of that, we have a wider network of people to confide in, travel with, and learn from. You're gaining, he says, a more diverse social network. But it's also worth mentioning that our phones interfere with some of our most important relationships in face-to-face scenarios. According to a study conducted by James Roberts and Meredith David, fubbing, which is snubbing others in favor of our phones, decreases marital satisfaction, in part because it leads to conflict over phone use. Not only that, but another set of studies show that just having a phone out, say, on a dinner table and present during a meaningful conversation interferes with your sense of connection to the other person. And usually it's those meaningful face-to-face conversations that truly bring us closer to each other. Wow, I have to say right here, I had a wonderful conversation with my oldest friend yesterday and both of our phones were on the table and they were face down. But in the future, I'm going to try to remember this study and have my phone tucked away in my purse. Finally, the article wraps up. In one of these studies, Professor Misra found that, quote, if either participant placed a mobile device on the table or held it in their hand, the quality of conversation was rated to be less fulfilling. She also noticed that participants who took out their phone mid-conversation felt less empathy for the other person. Wow. Did you catch that part in the article about our different responses to different devices that smart pads are typically used for antisocial behavior, stuff done alone, like reading a book or watching a video, whereas a phone is almost exclusively used for social behaviors, texting or phoning a friend, sharing a bit of news, posting a photo, and then checking on the number of likes and comments. That same article 
I'm going to highlight this again. They asked that core question. So are we screwed? And their quote was, no, we're not. While this article may feel like a gray cloud looming overhead, there are quite a few silver linings. So I love that. They point out also, they need to clear up that phone usage doesn't create the same neurological response as a chronic addiction. So that's an upside, right? There are withdrawal symptoms, but it's not like a chemical addiction. They leave readers with a final challenge. They ask us to establish balance and boundaries with our phones. And they say, download an app that tracks your phone usage. There's one that they suggested that I hadn't been aware of until I read the article. It's called Moment. And they ask that we begin to pay attention to how many times we pick up our phones each day. It might surprise us. And I think it would actually, right? If you start to work towards decreasing that number by just five or 10 a day, the benefits may surprise you. So I'm going to try to do that. So the next part of the conversation is about staying in the present. It's healthier for you and for those around you. This may seem obvious, but it bears repeating. I just spoke with a very creative friend in person. She's not alone in her experience, hit by a driver that was on their cell phone. When she came to from the accident, she saw the person on the cell phone again, hoping they were calling 911 for help, but they weren't. They were actually finishing up the conversation that had distracted them and led to the accident. We need to be present for the safety and well-being of others, especially when we're operating a vehicle. And the other thing I'll say is sometimes we can avoid being a victim of petty crime, like a purse snatching and other things like that, by being present and not having our noses in a phone. How about we focus on the here and now, the situation, the person across from us, the universe that's probably sent 50 messages to us that we missed prior? Or what about our dog who wants us to see their joy as we are taking them on their evening walk? Their favorite person in the world is out with them doing their favorite thing, and they want you to notice, not be on their phone. Stay present. It's a muscle we still have, but It's atrophied over the years. So maybe we can endeavor, and I'm speaking for myself here, maybe I can endeavor to work that muscle a little bit more each day until I have a be in the present six pack. Staying present is mandatory for any creative pursuit. So is being alone. I know with writing to actually sit down and write a novel, well, it is a very lonely pursuit. That time with your butt in the chair, it's as rough as meditation when you first endeavor it. You know, the mind races here and there, the eyes, the ears. If you're working from home, you're thinking of a hundred different things you probably should do instead of this. All the senses are working in cahoots to keep you from being in a place of emptiness, of no thing. 
I found an article about author Neil Gaiman from getnoticed.com that relates. And I've got, of course, the article is in the show notes that you can click on and read fully. It's titled The Magic of Doing Nothing, Literally No Thing, and begins, Neil Gaiman says, do nothing. Here are some highlights. And I've linked the original, as I've said, in the show notes so you can read the entire thing in your own space. When Neil Gaiman says, do nothing, it's a pretty clever productivity hack that I wanted to share with you. In a recent interview with Tim Ferriss, Neil Gaiman shared one of his rules for writing. What was interesting for me to hear is that some authors do not like the process of writing. I don't think Neil is one of these authors, but he did describe how some very well-known authors struggled to write as much as they needed to. Many of them have resorted to locking themselves away in really bad hotel rooms, hotel rooms that are so bad in locations that are so boring that they're practically forced to write because there's nothing else for them to do. Neil Gaiman's version of this technique is much less dramatic, but still very effective. When he sits down to write, he gives himself permission to write or to do nothing. And I mean nothing. He can sit quietly. He can think about things. However, he's not allowed to do anything else. He can't do a crossword. He can't play with his son. He can't look at his phone. He gives himself permission to do only two things, write or do nothing. The trick is that eventually, even if you're struggling with writing, the idea of writing becomes a lot more interesting than doing nothing. And so eventually you get back to work and you work for a while and you're allowed to stop whenever you want, but you're just not allowed to do anything else but write or do nothing. The author comments, quote, this technique will be especially helpful when working on projects that are challenging. When something's challenging or you feel uncertain about it, the tendency is to distract yourself and do something else more fun, practically anything else, but the nothing you sat down to do. And this is just more proof to me, this is Jen again, that we need to take time to do absolutely nothing. That's when the mind can drift and create and produce. I found another article about non-doing with a young man in Taipei. This is from Paul Millard's article from his The Pathless Path blog. And of course, it's in the show notes. He says, quote, to not do things can be scary. Growing up in the U.S., we're constantly aware of the perception of others and that if we are not doing enough, we might get called lazy. You always want to avoid being called lazy. I'm not here to convince you that being lazy is worthwhile, but instead to argue that our fears of being perceived as lazy keep us from experiencing a much different feeling, which is better explained by a term from another culture, Wu Wei, or Handy gives the Chinese um, characters for it. In Chinese, Wu Wei, this literally means inaction or non-doing, but does not necessarily mean 
doing nothing. The desire to do nothing often shows up for people as a reaction to spending a lot of time doing things you want to escape from. Being in a state of non-doing, you are not escaping anything. Instead, you're doing things that come naturally and with a spirit of lighthearted playfulness. He says, walking around in Taipei was the first time he experienced this feeling. He goes on, when I was living in New York or Boston in the previous 10 years, I might be wandering around the city doing very little, but it was always in tension with the predominant culture that I should be doing something, that I might have forgotten something, or I might not have done enough. In Taipei, that feeling evaporated. I didn't yet know the cultural scripts or expectations around me. I was both in a state of not knowing and non-doing, and I felt okay. Picture yourself floating in the middle of an ocean, and all you can see is the horizon all around you. You have no idea where you are. Sounds terrifying, right? Now, picture you are not worried about where you are. There is nowhere to go, and deep down, you know you'll be okay. This is the feeling I'm talking about. The best description I've seen of this is from Tao Te Ching, written in China in the 6th century BC. And it goes, quote, in pursuit of knowledge, every day something is added. In the practice of Tao, every day something is dropped. Less and less do you need to force things until finally you arrive at non-action. When nothing is done, nothing is left undone. True mastery can be gained by letting things go their own way. It can't be gained by interfering. Nothing to do and nothing left undone. Millard continues, quote, When I first experienced this feeling in Taiwan, I was not transformed. Given enough time, feelings of guilt and shame appeared. In my head, there were voices shouting, You lazy bastard, you'll go broke, or you just can't do this forever. Yet guiding me was a line from a Repekit Solnit book I had read that said, quote, That thing, the nature of which is totally unknown to you, is usually what you need to find. And find Finding it is a matter of getting lost. Embracing a state of non-doing felt like being lost, so I kept leaning into it. Over time, this enabled me to have a little more comfort with the underlying uncertainty of life. While we can never fully overcome this thing, it is more clear to me now that no matter any amount of action will ever give us the sense of control we desire over life. The hardest thing about this is the tension it creates with others. When you shift away from moving towards things, progressing towards extrinsic goals, or doing things in exchange for something else, it can raise alarms. Don't you want blank? Don't you want to grow your audience? What do you mean you aren't focused on making money? How could you not want to go? Everyone's going. And this is the rub. The degree to which you can be content depends just as much on embracing a state of non-doing as the tension and distance between you and your environment. He, he talks about legible goals 
are the least interesting. So in his writing, he goes on, he says, I've been exploring how non-doing overlaps with our current culture of work. The short answer is that it doesn't. Our current culture of work and our global economic systems incentivize almost everyone to orient around the idea that more and bigger is better. This has led to the bizarre scenario where profitable businesses are sometimes called lifestyle businesses, while serious businesses can be losing billions of dollars a year. In my past work life, I was a successful worker in the prestigious world of strategy consulting. To break in and to succeed in this world requires a certain level of business insight, awareness of how to make money, and an ability to decode the paths of how to get there. With this perspective, my rational brain is tuned to identify extrinsic goals that I know I could reach with a certain amount of discipline. While these paths are not certain, they are more comfortable to pursue than embracing the unknown and thus can be nearly impossible to reject. Yet as I've found when you do say no and create a space, more interesting things emerge. I love that. I myself recently completed 30 straight days of an online yoga journey. It was a series of videos on YouTube. They were led by Yoga with Adrian. And when I began, I had zero experience with yoga. My guts at the time were in a knot and I was healing up from a bleeding ulcer, a hole that I'd eaten away in my stomach by ignoring grief, by ignoring stress and anxiety. So I found Adrian when I Googled yoga to help your guts. So 30 days, it was 30 straight days. I started on October 1st. Each day, each uh, lesson, she didn't call it a lesson, but each moment of yoga came with different life bits and pieces that tugged at me to skip or excuses that seemed valid, solid, almost insurmountable sometimes, but I stuck with it. Adrian said, especially in those first seven or so days, that the hardest part was showing up, and I believed her. Sometimes I fit in the day's yoga in my pajamas just to hit the mark. All of the days taught me to tap into my breath, be present in my body. Adrian reminds us to feel into our bodies. What does your body need right now is something she's saying often stretch or move into that. I found myself stopping, stopping that perpetual ignoring of pain in different places in my body. I took care to breathe into those spaces. And the even just like a few days in, I would say a week to be completely fair, I carried it all the lessons into my days and my nights. It became my new habit. Adrian talks about stacking our bones, head over heart, heart over pelvis, and that carried into my sleep. Instead of my body being something I largely ignored, my body and spirit found their own language, a way of coexisting that's been really good for all of me. 
It's even changed what I'm choosing to eat about and drink and how much rest I'm taking. Even in the middle of the day, if I need to stop for 15 minutes, I hear myself and I do that. If meditation feels like a struggle or a stretch or something that others do, but it's not for you, just try taking a breath and feeling the air expand into your chest and your belly, and then push back out of your mouth in a long exhale. That's it. That's all the skill required to be present in the moment and in your body. If you like, take another breath. And when a thought enters your mind, channel your inner elementary school teacher and tell it, thank you. I see your hand up, but it's not your turn to speak yet. Emptiness, voids, spaces. I'm learning those are the magic. They are the dark matter of our earthly existence. They are the places where the imagination plays and creates and problem solves and loves and feels deep compassion and swims with all other consciousness. Because that's the game, isn't it? We came from this beautiful pool of everything. We made ourselves to forget, to challenge ourselves. And in those empty spaces, we get to be part of the everything once again. I want to end the episode which is with a touch of lightness. So I found the sweetest video on YouTube. It's all about if our cats manifested us and if cats in general are Arcturians or an alien race that was sent to earth to help us humans to be in balance, to vibe higher, all the good stuff. Here's a snippet that applies to today's conversation. Watch the whole video if you get a chance by clicking on the link in the show notes. Their presence can reel you back into the present, away from the tumult of past regrets and future anxieties, grounding you into the here and now with a moment's purr or a playful swat. As you navigate the tumultuous tides of life, remember that in every heartbeat, every shared moment with your feline friend lays a sparkling breadcrumb on your path of self-discovery and spiritual awakening. Thanks for listening to Curious Cat and for journeying with me as I explore what this thing called life is all about. Stay curious. I love you.